So I want to do something this morning, and hopefully I won't get a bunch of emails later uh, about how you hate me or think I'm a terrible person. But this morning, I want to talk as we're going to be continuing in our series called The Kingdom. I want to talk about Jesus and our thoughts and perceptions of Jesus. You know, as time has gone on in my life, I've realized that Jesus is so much more and so much more of a complex person than I ever thought. Um, you know, I think one of the issues is, if you're like me, you've grown up, and, and maybe there's been kind of cherry-picked, like you only heard these sort of stories if you grew up in church in Sunday school, or you've only seen these sort of images of him. And so, if it's okay, one of my kind of things I enjoy kind of doing, because I'm a terrible person, again, please don't don't hate me for this, but I find it fascinating, some of the artwork that surrounds Jesus. Now, again, there's some great artwork, but especially like in, in the Renaissance, there became sort of this popular thing to begin to paint paintings of Jesus. Now, we're not even going to get into the fact that almost all of them always look like a very like, um, like, like Jesus has never seen the sun before white Mel Gibson. We're not going to get into that in the fact that obviously he is from the Middle East, so he probably wouldn't look like that. And the Bible talks about how he was kind of not like anything to be, you know, talked about, but he's always strikingly handsome. Um, but it's interesting, some of the artwork that we find uh, of, of Jesus that are just kind of interesting. And I wonder if sometimes the artwork is something that reflects more of our own thoughts than really what Jesus would be like. So uh, without further ado, if we could bring up the first slide of pictures. Uh, this one is called Rocky Jesus. Um, uh, and I, I saw a tagline somewhere on the Internet with this, too, uh, about knocking out Satan. Again, none of these, please don't hear me wrong that there's anything wrong with paintings of Jesus. But some of these are just a little interesting extreme. How about the next one? Uh, this one is uh, Pizza Delivery Jesus. This one is extra, maybe a little bit of a joke. But, um, you know, he delivers, right? He is our deliverer. He delivers pizza. It's a little funny, right? Um, next one, please. Uh, home Run Jesus. Baseball started. Who do you guys think is going to win the World Series? Not the Cubs? Cool. Awesome. Um, it's not going to be the Tigers either. Let's be honest. Come on. I don't know who this is going to be. Um, very interesting uh, take. This one is probably my favorite one. This is Bodybuilder Jesus. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this one. I, in my translation, I did not remember him, you know, kind of flexing and breaking uh, the cross. And then last but not least, uh, we have Precious Moments Jesus, where, um, you know, if you saw a lot of these images growing up, this is kind of the popular type of ones I saw oftentimes growing up. And as a kid, I won't lie, it kind of made me feel like Jesus was this very soft-spoken um, person who always had sheep following him, quite literally, uh, kind of like Belle, where she has the birds always following her in, uh, uh, oh, what's that movie? Why can't I think of it? Someone help me. Which one is that? Sleep? No. Uh, I'm, I'm getting my Disney princes wrong. It doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying. It just felt like he was this mythical, like, Pied Piper of... Of, of lambs walking around, but also, like, let's be honest, a lot of times, and some of those, again, were just, just kind of funny. It's funny to see how people kind of portray different things and do different things, um, some to be funny and just some because that's how they kind of picture them. But it's interesting, most of how we picture Jesus, I think, has more to do with us than it has to do with what Scripture says. Some of it maybe has to do with just the Scripture we've been exposed to. Some of it has to do with just what we want to think about. But again, I, I oftentimes wonder if we kind of box Jesus into this category, these places that he never was meant to be boxed into. I read this book this year that I thought was really interesting, and we'll probably do a series uh, on it later, by a guy named John Mark Comer. 
And this book was called God Has a Name. And, and, and one of the bigger premises of the book was just this idea of how oftentimes uh, we, we box God into uh, an identity of our own rather than just his own identity. And, and, and I wanted to share just a couple quotes uh, with you guys from him. He says this, here's how you know you've created God in your own image. He agrees with you on everything. He hates all the people you hate. He voted for the person you voted for. If you're a Republican, so is he. If you're a Democrat, she is too. If you're passionate about blank, then God is passionate about blank. If you're open and elastic about sexuality, so is he. And above all, he's tame. You never get mad at him or are blown away by him or scared of him because he's controllable. He goes on and he says, often what we believe about God says more about us than it does about God. Our theology, theology is a word that just means for how we think about God, is like a mirror to our soul. It shows what's deep inside. This morning, as we're going to dive into God's word, we're going to look at some of the pieces of Jesus' ministry that I think are harder, that sometimes they're not necessarily the stories that we like to talk about uh, in Sunday school or the stories that like when we're reading in our devotional, like, yes, I love this one. Because typically, if you're like me, when we dive into God's word, we're kind of looking for like the tweetable, encouraging scripture, right? We're looking for something like, uh, in all things I can do, th- uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Great verse, don't get me wrong, but we're looking for ones typically that like fully just kind of help us feel good, right? And I'm not saying that by no means like scripture is supposed to make us feel bad, nor am I any, by any means supposed to be like, you guys need to start finding books of the Bible that are going to depress you, okay? By no means am I saying that. But I wonder sometimes if we want to skip over things because they're more difficult. And I wonder if some of them, uh, as I would maybe put it in kind of my own paraphrase of, of what Comer had to say, is that I think maybe the moments in Scripture that I find Jesus the most uncomfortable probably say a lot more about me than him. That oftentimes I want to pass by them. They're more difficult to digest because I just don't have a category for it. Because the Jesus in my mind through uh, paintings, through popular culture, through uh, just reading certain parts of Scripture have oftentimes led me to believe that Jesus is this one-dimensional Mr. Rogers type of character who is just this everything's nice and all things are great and, and loving. And yet we see that Jesus was so much better, so much more complex. And we're going to talk a little about that this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, you can open up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23. And uh, we're going to be reading in verses 1 through 4. Uh, I wanted this up on the screen so that way you'd know. We're going to be looking uh, briefly this morning at two, uh, two kind of moments in which Jesus is what I would call harsh Jesus. Where, where he, uh, if, if you were just reading it without any context, you'd kind of come away and think, wow, Jesus, why do you got to get so, you know, get your panties so much in a bunch? And why are you, uh, why are you being such a disruptor? Why, why can't we just kind of work things out and unify things? And uh, we're going to see a bit more of a passionate Jesus. And uh, hang with me. Uh, but I wanted you, if you're taking notes, write that down. And I want you to spend time later reading this section of Scripture. I couldn't spend the whole time this morning on it. Uh, this, this section is oftentimes referred to as the seven woes. And, and woe, uh, if you've ever ridden a horse, you know what woe means, right? I mean, you're riding and you say woe because you need to stop and slow down because otherwise something bad is going to happen. And that's really what a woe means in this context. 
Jesus is, is talking to the, 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 the different teachers of the laws and the Pharisees. And he gives these seven woes. And he, he begins, though, his little kind of um, judgment upon them, his, his, his harsh talking with them, by saying this. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you to do. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them for them. Now, Jesus starts off with these really harsh words. He says, hey, you have these teachers of the law who are teaching you basically the Old Testament. And now, by no means does Jesus, this is an important thing to notice, by no means does he say, hey, what they're teaching is completely wrong. He's by no means saying, yeah, they're, they're completely wrong. But what's the attack right there at the very beginning? Their hypocrisy, right? He begins to attack their hypocrisy. You see, one of the issues of the time is that there are different groups of teachers. That's why sometimes you'll read about the Pharisees or the Sadducees, and then you also hear about the Sanhedrin. And, and there's all these different kind of groups of intellectual um, kind of, for lack of better terms in that time, Bible-thumping people. They're the people who know it inside out, backwards and forwards, and they want to make sure that everyone follows it to the letter of the law, even if they don't themselves. And so Jesus gives these seven woes. And again, I, like I said, I can't spend the entire time this morning uh, jumping through all them, but let me give you kind of a few of these sort of woes, these pronouncements of judgment, which again, we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't judge, right? Jesus does this. He, he talks to them. And he talks about how they have given preaching. They're giving sermons in which they're talking about the kingdom, but they're making sure that no one can get into it. They're telling people about how they need to experience the grace of God, yet they've shut everyone them, and themselves outside of it. He talks about how they have this misguided zeal. Zeal is just this word for kind of crazy passion that oftentimes lead to action and in a really terrible way, oftentimes violence. And they talk about how they have so much zeal. They're so passionate about the way that they view religion, the way that they view how people should interact with God, that they, can, they, they actually do create converts. They create people to buy into what they're, 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 they're drinking the Kool-Aid they are serving. But the worst thing is that they make people who are actually worse than themselves. You ever met people like that? They, they, they become worse than the people who kind of created them. I know that sounds like kind of weird, but, you know, there's some people, it's kind of like, uh, let's be honest, uh, it's kind of like sports fans, right? There are some sports fans, I'm not going to name teams, I'm not going to talk about Ohio State or Michigan or anything like that. Um, I'm, I can't say anything about Indiana teams. But where they, they slowly have children, and then their children become even more sort of uh, zealous about their fandom, even if they don't know what they're talking about, and even if they're really prideful and they haven't won anything in a long time. But anyways, I digress. But we've met those sort of people, right, where, where they become sometimes worse than, than the person who kind of taught them certain things. That's what he talks about here. Then he talks about this idea that there's careless values. They have the wrong priorities, that there's the wrong emphasis, that they're so focused on greed, on power, rather than on justice and mercy. He talks about how they're wholly motivated by this idea, not just of greed and money, but of power and prestige. They want people to see them. They care so deeply that everyone else will notice how great they are. We live in a culture like that today, don't we, with social media? Everyone wants to have this image. 
They want to be a influencer. They want everyone to see that everything is perfectly put together. Jesus even uses this analogy where he talks about how you clean the outside of the bowl, yet the inside of the bowl is still dirty. Woe to you, you Pharisees and teachers of the law. He talks about how there's a dishonest presentation, how they make it look like they have it all together. They make it look like everything is good, but on the de- on the inside, everything is dead. Finally, they talk about this idea that there's dead tradition, that the traditions that God gave that aren't bad have become the idol. They've become the thing of worship rather than what the tradition was supposed to point them to. Woe to you, Pharisees and teachers of the law. As I was studying this week and and reading all about these woes and realizing there was no way we'd be able to get through all of them in a short, concise time this morning. You know what the worst thing about reading about all of these things were? It wasn't any sort of warped sense of, oh, how do I deal with this idea of of God and, and judgment or Jesus calling people out? Because let's be honest, if you're like me, most of the times I can look and say, all right, the Pharisees, they are the villains. They're the bad guys, right? It's really easy to figure that out. My 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 almost three-year-old is now starting to, as he watch shows, figure out the idea of that's the bad guys and that's the good guys. We, 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 we tend to pick these up. We tend to categorize people, right? There's either the good people or the bad people. There's not a lot of in-between. And yet, as I'm studying this, as I'm reading these woes, can I be really honest with you? Maybe for one of the first time ever, I felt terribly convicted as I began to say, wow, Jesus probably could look at me and say, whoa, Aaron, you make some of the outside look so good, yet on the inside, you haven't let me take over this part. Woe to you, Aaron. There have been times where you have cared more about a platform, about, about power, about influence, than you've cared about your own neighbor. Woe to you, Aaron, because there have been moments where you have held on to traditions, on to different things, as if they were as holy as I am myself. You see, when we begin to read Scripture in a standpoint of understanding that there are not good people and there are not bad people, that there are just people, there are just lost people, broken people, and that all people can be redeemed All people can be restored. I think we begin to read things through a different lens. Now, here's the big question, though. Why is Jesus so harsh? Why is he, maybe if we were just to to walk in and think he's mean. Anyone else, if if you're a parent, ever feel bad, uh, like when you're out in public and you have to discipline your child, like you always think like, man, People only ever hear me yell at my child, right? Something like that, where you're like, everyone's going to call CPS because all they're seeing is this one moment. I think that's one of these things here in Scripture, right? If People are almost worried, like, don't don't tell new believers about this moment. Do you know why? Because we don't want them to think that Jesus yells at us. We don't want them to think like kind of like that, like, like, like it's like a parent, like, oh, we can't yell because we don't want anyone to know that we discipline our kids. How terrible would that be? And yet Jesus in this moment... The reason why he is frustrated, it's not because he doesn't love the Pharisees. He came for them just like he came for everyone else. Here's the reason why. If you couldn't figure out the common thread throughout all of that, he was frustrated with the fact that they had begun to produce systems, rituals, and and, and sort of a class structure 
where they were in deep power. Their money uh, was going up because of just all of the injustice. So much of it had to do with their hypocrisy and, and their, their need and desire to be in power. And when they did that, what began to happen is they made temple worship, they made the Torah, the, the, the law, less about the God who redeemed and restored the Israelite people and more about just following rules to be holy and self-righteous. Now, I don't know about you, I've met people like that, sadly, still today in churches. Obviously, no one here in this church, I've never met a person who uh, would ever be hip, hypocritical in this church, uh, maybe me. But I've experienced this, right? We've all experienced this. So why does Jesus do this? Why is he so angry? Why is he mad? It's because all of these actions, all of these attitudes, all of these woes have to do with the fact that people are being hurt in the midst of this injustice that is happening. People are feeling this burdensome load on them. It's detracting people from God. And so if you haven't figured it out yet, Jesus hates injustice because he loves people. Jesus hates injustice because he loves people. Jesus doesn't like, he's not just some police, uh, you know, force who's just out like wanting to have some sort of like, I'm going to make sure that everything happens right, wrong, and different. No, 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 no. It's not, Jesus isn't sitting up there saying like, I want you to follow these rules just blindly. He does all of these things because he loves us and cares for us. And he deeply and desperately wants all of his children to have good well-being. He hates the injustice because the injustice is always involving and hurting people. Now think about this. If you're a parent and you have more than one child, would you be okay if one of your children began to excel and do great wholly because they were harming and hurting and pushing down your other child? Hopefully you would say no. If you said yes, we need to have a conversation about that's really bad, that's really terrible. Hopefully most of us would say no. Any good sane person would say, I want all of my children to excel and do well. I want all of them to experience joy and just life to the fullest. And so in the same way, God, Jesus, he hates injustice because it always has to do with people. And he loves people. He doesn't want to see any of them harmed. I was listening to a podcast this week. And a pastor named John Ortberg, who is out in California, was talking about this concept of kingdom. Again, we're in this series called The Kingdom. And, and he used this definition of kingdom that I thought was really helpful. He said a kingdom, uh, for the technical language, is, is the range of an effective will. That, that when you have a king, the king would have a will, and the effective will is going on throughout this area. You see, as Jesus gave these woes, it's, it's, it's even more of the writing on the wall that there is a clash between kingdoms. There's a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And sometimes even the kingdoms of this world masquerade as being a kingdom of God. Think about it. These people that he's calling out are people who knew the Bible better than anyone else in the world at that moment. These people were people who, 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 who would claim to be praying to God. They would be doing all these things, but there's this clash of this kingdom. But again, like I said before, the difficulty as I was reading the scriptures this week was this. I began to realize and began to feel convicted about this idea that every one of us have our own kingdom. Every one of us 
at our core, wants to be the king or queen of our kingdom. We have a will. We have preferences. We have ideas. We have ways. We have attitudes. And we want our will to be pushed forward. And oftentimes, let's be honest, we want God's will to match up with our will. Not that we want to come up under God's will, but the opposite. We want God to come under our will. And that is where there's this clash. Now let's get to maybe my favorite clash that we have with Jesus. Matthew chapter 21. We're going backwards. Matthew chapter uh, 21, verses 12 through 13. This is a very popular text that many people are going to know and and have probably read before. And this is found in other parts of uh, different gospels as well. Jesus enters the temple courts and he drove drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. I believe it's in the Gospel of John. There's even more beautiful imagery of Jesus literally carrying in a whip and chasing people out and turning over tables. I've never seen a painting like that. You know, we, we've seen a lot of ones with, with little lambs or obviously playing back. I've even seen basketball ones. I don't know that I've ever seen a, 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 a painting of, of Jesus with a whip turning over tables. And yet this is what we find. More than one of the gospel accounts as well. What do we do with this? Where does this come from? Let's unpack this a little bit. So why does he do this? Jesus, this wouldn't have been the first time he was in the temple. This wouldn't have been the first time that he was in the temple. Uh, so here's a question. Was this holy because of this the first time? Like, whoa, whoa, there's injustice going on. I've never seen this before. And the answer is yes and no. Jesus would have been in the temple uh, many times as a, as a boy, growing up, even as a man, he would have came. You see, in that time, what would end up happening, we've talked a little bit about this over the series, is that you would go to Jerusalem and people would make these pilgrimages. And you're talking traveling hundreds or thousands of miles sometime to go to the temple. And if you wanted to seek the forgiveness of God for the sins that you committed, you would go there and you would make sacrifice. There would be an animal that would be killed, their blood would be shed, and that is how you would have the opportunity to experience the forgiveness of sins. So what changes? There's a man named Caiaphas that you'll read about in certain parts, especially in Matthew, who was the high priest of the day. The high priest would have been sort of the leader of all of the different teachers of the law of the time. And Caiaphas is uh, this contentious character that we um, find who is the one who most scholars believe uh, is really kind of the one who kind of put out the hit on Jesus' head. I mean, he's sort of the mob boss of of the Jewish ruling class at this time. His position would have held tons of authority, not just in uh, the Jewish population, but he would have had a lot of sway with the Romans and different things of that time. Many scholars believe that what ended up happening is that Caiaphas saw a great business opportunity. You see, outside the temple, for most of the time after they rebuilt the temple, you would go to the outside of the temple, and there is where there would be the money changers, where you would come from whatever currency that you had, and you'd have to exchange it, so you'd have kind of like uh, Chuck E. Cheese. You know, you come in, and you got to get the right Chuck E. coins, right? You can't just use your own money, and you cannot break, uh, they will not break a 20. You have to just get $20 worth of coins, right? 
And so the, these sort of things would have been happening on the outside. Same with if you're traveling thousands of miles, do you really think you want to take your sacrifice with you, your lamb? Probably not. Uh, so you would go there and you would buy one instead. And so what Caiaphas realized is probably a lot of like what Disney and other different places have realized. That instead of letting things be, you know, bought on the outside and bring it in, what if we just bring everything inside where we can control it, where we can hike up the prices, the exchange rates, and we can fatten our wallets just a little bit more. So many scholars believe that this is the first time that this has happened, that Caiaphas sees this opportunity and he seizes his moment. And so when Jesus comes inside, he sees this reality that there is just more ongoing oppression and injustice. That it was one thing that, that people would have to buy at the higher rates. He got that. But the idea that, okay, wait, now you are going to make my father's house, which was designated to be a house of worship, a house of prayer, that the whole point of going to the temple was to seek the presence of God. Nothing more, nothing less. You have created it into this marketplace. And not only that, this crooked place. And he gets mad. And again, sometimes we don't have a category for a mad Jesus because we want happy Jesus. We want smiling Jesus. And yet, why does he get mad? It goes back again to this idea of Jesus hates injustice because he loves people. If you didn't catch it in the scripture, it says that he turned over the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, that might seem like just sort of a small, minute detail. But think about this. A lamb and a dove are different in sizes, right? This isn't a trick question, I promise. We're not talking Guinness World Record size doves for a moment. We're just talking about regular size ones. So if, if you were from a normal, you know, middle to upper class Jewish family, you probably would purchase the lamb. That would be great. And, you know, it felt like, you know, the bigger the offering, the greater the forgiveness. But imagine, what if you are poor? What if you're poor and you believe in the one true God and you want to go and you want to make your pilgrimage and you want to go into the temple, make a sacrifice, and have things uh, made, 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 made good with God? What would you have to use? You can't afford a lamb, what would you do? You'd buy a dove. You'd buy the smaller thing. This moment, this little blip on the radar in Scripture is important because Jesus in this moment is not just angry that there is injustice, that there is crookedness that's going on, but it's also going on to the point where it is taking advantage of the poor and the destitute. Throughout Scripture, you will find, you can't make an argument otherwise, that God is always, always has this this beautiful love for the poor. Because even though we can sometimes get hung up on things like, oh, the reasons why people are poor or, or, or the generational cycles, and I'm not saying any of those aren't true, but there's this reality that still every single one of us were created in the image of God. Every single one of us, our, our, our default factory identity is supposed to be son and daughter. And so every single one of them he cares about deeply and desperately. And so when he sees his child, who already maybe is having a harder time because they're poor, being taken advantage of even more, it just makes him livid. Because again, God deeply cares about people. Now, 
Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you haven't. We have this tension throughout the Bible of a God who is deeply loving and gracious and a God who is just. So what do those two things mean? Okay, gracious, loving, right? We typically categorize gracious and loving as this. We're, we're, we're getting something that we do not deserve, right? We're getting this, this free gift. We're getting this love. We're getting this presence despite everything that we do that is bad. And yet on the other side of justice, justice is something that there has to be some sort of equality. We're not talking vengeance, but we're talking about this reality that if a wrong has been committed, a right has to outweigh it, right? You know, maybe you've seen the different things at, at courts and things like that where they have the little balance systems, right? It's this idea of justice eventually weighing things out so there becomes sort of even-keeledness. What do we do when you have a God who is full of love and grace, but a God who is also full of justice? What do we do with that when there's this reality, this, this troubling truth that we still also don't like to talk about, we don't like to realize? It's just the fact that we are deeply unfaithful people. We constantly, constantly put other things in the place of God. Whether it's a bad thing or a good thing. Whether it is through an addiction to a substance or if it is through an addiction to our phones. Whether it's an addiction to uh, alcohol or it is a, 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 a just placing our family in the wrong place. Whether it is putting all of these demands and in, 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 in worth and value in what we do. Or if it's just a really destructive behavior. All of them are idolization. All of them are, 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 are unfaithfulness. In the terms of marriage, all of it is adultery. So what do we do when you have a God who is so full of love, but a God who is also about justice? What do we do with this fact that there has to be bloodshed, there has to be atonement, there has to be some sort of debt that is paid? Think about this. Whenever, you know, someone once told me this, and I didn't believe it until I thought about it. Oh, yeah, that's true. There's nothing free in this world, right? There's nothing free. If someone buys your meal, you got a free meal, but someone paid for it, right? Even if it's on the house, someone loses out on something. So how does God deal with this reality of a deeply sinful people who he longs to be with, yet this justice that in his nature he can't just wipe it all away and say we're good and call it a day? That's where Jesus comes in. That's where grace, where love collides with a God who is just. And so the God who got completely infuriated, who came into the temple through tables, had a whip. The God who called out the holiest of holy people in front of everybody with harsh terms. He called them a brood of vipers, which again, I would not say you should probably call anyone that. That sounds pretty terrible. That same God is the one who decided he would go to the cross for each and every one of us so that his love and his justice could collide. My friends, Jesus' death was justice for our sin. And his love and justice is on display on the cross. Friends, that's incredibly, incredibly good news for each one of us. Because whether we want to admit it or not, there are moments where we deserve to be called out. There are moments 
where because God loves us so much, he has every right to walk in and throw around some things in our life. Not because he's mean, not because he's vengeful, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us and he loves others so much that he cannot allow the injustices to stand against other people and he can't allow the injustices that we allow ourselves to experience as well. God loves you so much right exactly where you are. But he loves you far too much to leave you where you are. And this morning, my hope and my prayer is that maybe something new could be happening in your life where you begin to follow King Jesus. Not not Mr. Rogers, Jesus. Not Not a judgmental God who is just looking and hates people. But a Jesus who is just everything that is good who died on the cross for us, but who also saw injustice in this world and said, I cannot sit idly by. Something has to be done. Something has to be disrupted. You know, he physically turned the tables and turned everything upside down with the way that forgiveness was happening. But think about it. That's what the cross did. He turned it all upside down. I don't know about you, but I am so glad I don't have to make a pilgrimage where people can steal my money and I have to watch an animal die for my sin. I'm so thankful that I can just look up to the heavens and just say, my God, my God, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. My heavenly Father, it's your boy. Come here, because if you don't meet me here, I'm done for. So what's the antidote for all of this? One of the coolest things that Jesus does is he called out the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, by saying you you, you place upon these burdens upon people, all these rules, all these restrictions that they could never do, and yet you don't do them themselves. And Jesus sums it up really easily. This is what we got to do if we want to be followers of Jesus, people in the kingdom. He just says this in response to what's the greatest commandment in the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these commands. Friends, it's simple. That's it. How do we love God and love our neighbor as ourself? We take the model, the posture of Jesus. We seek the will the rule, the kingdom of our Heavenly Father. And we seek to just find His presence. Not as perfect people who can just check a box and say, I did this, I did that. But just people who come begging on our knees, just longing to be in the presence of God. My son lately has just convicted me so much. Where sometimes he just says, Daddy, put your phone away. We hear. Man, so many of us could do so much good if we stop trying to follow the burdensome laws and just realize that our Father is here. Just enjoy Him. And with that life, 
where we are just holy in his presence, being changed and conformed in his image, that would flow out to us loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because we begin to have a posture of sons and daughters, redeemed and restored, forgiven, full of love. And we leave out here and we go into this world giving that same thing out to everyone else. We'd be less like Pharisees. We'd be more like Jesus. I'm going to ask you guys to stand this morning. And we're going to sing one more song. My hope and my prayer is that as we sing this song, would you just be open and listening to what God wants to say to you? Maybe he just wants to remind you that you are loved. Maybe he just wants you to know that you can let go of trying to check boxes. Maybe for some of us he needs to yell to us, Whoa, stop this. I love you too much. Maybe for some of us, he needs to flip some stuff upside down in our life so we can realize that we are heading towards destruction and maybe we're taking others with us. Whatever it is, may we listen to what he has to say for us. God, I thank you so much for who you are. God, I just love you so much. God, I thank you for the fact that, God, you are a God of justice. God, I used to hate that. I used to just wish, why couldn't you just forgive us all without having to do anything? Why do we have to even try to do things? And then I realized that you just love us too much. Because God, I want justice when I've been wronged. And I want grace when I've wronged others. And yet, God, you're so good that God, even though we've wronged you, you provide the justice. You paid the tab for us. God, this morning I pray if anyone has never experienced that that grace and that forgiveness of Jesus, I pray that they would realize all they have to do is reach out and say, Lord, I am sorry for the brokenness, for the sin in my life. Would you forgive me? And God, help me to become a disciple of yours, trying to follow your will in your ways as best I can. I want to be a son. I want to be a daughter. God, wherever we are in our relationship with you, God, would we just reach out and say, Abba, Papa, I need you. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.